1920s was something very special in American history. The Industrial Revolution was now complete. The United States had proven itself as a global power in acquiring an empire through the Spanish-American War and intervening in the First World War, and yet it lacked the physical destruction of the conflict throughout Europe. The standard of living was rising faster, and the music and the drinks were hot. Indeed, when Herbert Hoover took office, he predicted that America would soon see the end of poverty, but nobody would predict the sheer calamity that was soon to follow in his administration. But prior to the Great Depression, there were fractures within these Roaring Twenties. For instance, the success of the Bolshevik Revolution brought a widespread suspicion of socialist, radicals, and labor unions. Ethnic purists succeeded at slamming the door shut for future immigrants and hate groups such as the Ku Klux Klan gained in popularity as working-class Americans took aim at African-Americans, immigrants, Catholics, and Jews. Welcome to another episode of Print the Legend, a podcast for U.S. history students where we take a look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and in part two of our series, The Roaring Twenties, We'll take a look at life below the surface. Not everything was, in essence, a great Gatsby party. World War I was over, but the hysteria lingered. The Eastern Front had not gone well for Russia, and the pressures of their losing effort forced the Russian Tsar to abdicate. The new government had not fared much better. And finally, in November 1917, Vladimir Lenin had a successful revolution of the Bolshevik workers. The ideas of Karl Marx and his Communist Manifesto were now coming to fruition. Children, have you ever met the bogeyman before? And back in the United States, the Communist Party is beginning to form. Veterans were returning home. Workers who avoided striking during the war were now demanding wage increases to keep pace with the spiraling 1920s inflation. Over 3,000 post-war strikes swept the land. A small group of radicals formed the Communist Labor Party. Progressive and conservative Americans believed that labor activism was a menace to American society and must be squelched. The hatchet man against American radicals was President Woodrow Wilson's Attorney General, A. Mitchell Palmer. From 1919 to 1920, Palmer conducted a series of raids on individuals he believed were dangerous to American society. He deported 249 Russian immigrants without just cause. The so-called Soviet Ark was sent back to Mother Russia. With Palmer's sponsorship, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, the FBI, was created under the leadership of J. Edgar Hoover. And in January of 1920, federal agents broke into the homes of suspected anarchists without search warrants, jailed labor leaders, and held about 5,000 citizens without respecting their right to legal counsel. And it got worse. American legionnaires attacked members in their homes, in fact, 12 radicals were arrested, one of them beaten, castrated, and then shot. The New York State Legislature expelled five socialist representatives from their ranks. 
28 states banned the public display of red flags, and it seemed as if the witch hunt would never end. Responsible Americans began to speak out against the Palmer raids and demanded that American civil liberties be respected. Since the 1880s, America's shores were flooded with immigrants, primarily from Southern and Eastern Europe. The old nativist arguments grew louder in the first two decades of the 20th century. Critics of an open immigration policy cried that America's racial stock was being overrun by undesirables. Protestant fundamentalists worried that the number of Jewish and Catholic Americans grew larger. Labor leaders claimed that immigration lowered wages, and as a result, Congress slowly built walls around the newcomers. The first line of defense was a literacy test passed in 1917. The results were about as encouraging as the nativists had hoped. About 1.25 million immigrants still entered America in the first two years of the 20s. To combat this, Congress initiated the National Origins Act of 1924, the law-based admission to America on nationality. Immigrants from Northern and Western Europe were granted higher quotas than from other parts of the world. Asian immigration was banned completely. As a sign of pan-Americanism, there were no restrictions placed on immigrants from the Western Hemisphere. By World War I, the Ku Klux Klan was almost dead. But as the Roaring Twenties commenced, William Simmons of Atlanta summoned a great gathering on Stone Mountain on Thanksgiving Day. As the sun set, the participants massed around a burning cross and pledged once again to reassert white supremacy. The environment of intolerance and a new KKK prompted a drastic response by Marcus Garvey. Any leadership that teaches you to depend upon another race is a leadership that will enslave you. Yeah. Any leadership that teaches you to depend upon another race is a leadership that will enslave you. Garvey, an African-American, believed that equality for African-Americans could never be achieved in the United States. He formed the United Negro Improvement Association to promote economic cooperation among black businesses, with whites being left out. Garvey made fiery speeches and created uniforms and flags to symbolize a new black pride, counter to the KKK. The ultimate goal for blacks across the world should be to, quote, return to the motherland. Only in Africa could a strong nation dedicated to promotion of black culture flourish. And after amassing about 80,000 followers, Garvey founded the Black Star Steamship Company to begin transporting African-Americans back to Africa. Closely watched by government officials, though, Garvey was convicted of mail fraud in 1923 and deported to Jamaica. They were called the Lost Generation. America's most talented writers of the 1920s were completely disillusioned by the world and alienated by the changes in modern America. The ghastly horrors of trench warfare were a testament to humans' inhumanity. The ability of the human race to destroy itself had never been more evident 
but the materialism sparked by the Roaring Twenties left many intellectuals empty. Surely there was more to life than middle-class conformity, they pined. Intolerance towards immigrants and socialists led many writers to see America as grossly provincial. Thus the literature of the decade that was that of disaffection and withdrawal became some of America's greatest works. Enter F. Scott Fitzgerald. I knew you looked familiar, having a good time, old sport. Oh, the whole thing's incredible. I live just next door. He sent me an actual invitation. Seems I'm the only one. I still haven't met Mr. Gatsby. No one's met him. They say he's third cousin to the Kaiser and second cousin to the devil. I'm afraid I haven't been a very good host, old sport. You see, I'm Gatsby. He wrote about the excesses of the Jazz Age. He and his wife Zelda operated among the social elite in New York, Paris, and the French Riviera. The Great Gatsby, his most famous novel, highlights the opulence of American materialism while harshly criticizing morality. Ernest Hemingway wrote of disillusioned youths wandering Europe in the wake of World War I in search of meaning and the sun also rises. T.S. Eliot commented on the emptiness of American life in his poem, The Wasteland. And the foremost playwright of this newly respected American genre was Eugene O'Neill, noted for a desire under the elms and a long day's journey in tonight. But perhaps the sharpest critic of American middle-class lifestyle was Sinclair Lewis. In Main Street, he takes aim on small-town American life. After a string of successful novels, Lewis brought honor to American writers by becoming the first to win a Pulitzer Prize for literature. But aside from what was written in books, the movie industry catered to mass audiences. Every town seemed to have at least one movie theater. Early in the 1920s, all flocked to the screens to see silent action films and slapstick comedies by the likes of Charlie Chaplin. Sex appeal reigned supreme as American women swooned for Rudolph Valentino and American men yearned for the all-American beauty Mary Pickford. And to keep standards of morality high in the film industry, the Hayes office stifled artistic licensing by censoring objectionable scenes. Because of soaring profits, studios sought quantity rather than quality. Therefore, the decade saw few pictures of merit. The first talking picture, The Jazz Singer, appeared in 1929. And Walt Disney introduced a character called Mickey Mouse to the American public in a cartoon known as Steamboat Willie. By the end of the decade, over 100 million viewers attended movie houses each week. That's more than the number of weekly churchgoers. In 1925, biology teacher John Scopes spiraled to fame in the legal battle that became known as the Monkey Trial. Perhaps very little excited the American people more than a real-life trial that took place in Tennessee. When Darwin announced his theory that humans and apes had descended from a common ancestor, he sent shockwaves around the Western world. In the years that followed in his 1859 declaration, America's churches hotly debated whether to accept the findings of modern science or continue to follow the teachings of ancient scripture. 
By the 1920s, most of the urban churches of America had been able to reconcile Darwin's theory with the Bible, but rural preachers preferred a stricter interpretation. It was John Butler's anti-evolutionary law that prohibited the teaching of any theory that denied the story of divine creation. In 1925, the Tennessee legislature passed the Butler Law, which forbade the teaching of Darwin's theory of evolution in any public school. The American Civil Liberties Union led the charge for evolution's supporters. It offered to fund the legal defense of any Tennessee teacher willing to fight that law in court. Another showdown between modernity and tradition was unfolding. was all about. On a hot summer's day in the courtroom, Judge Ralston, whose career had never extended beyond the borders of Tennessee, swore in a jury of farmers. The man who accepted the challenge was John T. Scopes, a science teacher and football coach in Dayton, Tennessee. In the spring of 1925, he walked into his classroom and read from Dayton, Tennessee's approved textbook, Hunter's Civic Biology, part of a chapter on the evolution of humankind and Darwin's theory of natural selection. His arrest soon followed, and a trial was set. became the center of world judicial interest. As the Scopes trial continued, Judge Neal, another renowned jurist, was called to bolster the defense counsel of Clarence Darrow and Dudley Field Malone. Representing Scopes was the famed trial lawyer Clarence Darrow. Slick and sophisticated, Darrow epitomized the urban society in which he lived. The prosecution was led by William Jennings Bryant, three-time presidential candidate and former Secretary of State. The great commoner was the perfect representative of the rural values that he dedicated his life to defend. The trial turned into a media circus. When the case opened on that very hot July day, journalists from across the land descended upon the mountain hamlet of Dayton, Tennessee. Preachers and fortune seekers filled the streets. Entrepreneurs sold everything from food to Bibles to even stuffed monkeys. The trial became the first ever to be recorded and then broadcast on radio. All the folks in Tennessee are as faithful as can be, and they know the Bible teaches what is right. Scopes himself played a rather small role in the case. The trial was reduced to a verbal contest between Darrow and Brian. But it was decided that when the judge refused to admit expert testimony on the validity of evolutionary theory, Darrow lost his best defense. He decided that if he was not permitted to validate Darwin, his best shot was to attack the Bible. The climax of the trial came when Darrow asked Brian to take the stand as an expert on the Bible. Darrow hammered Brian with tough questions on his strict acceptance of several Bible stories from the creation of Eve from Adam's rib to the swallowing of Jonah by a whale. Who helped to make the trial an inquisition. The jury sided with the law. Clearly, Scopes was in violation of Tennessee statute by teaching that humans evolved from apes. He was fined $100 and released. But the battle that played out before the nation proved a victory for supporters of evolutionary theory. A later court dismissed the fine imposed on Scopes, though in the short term, the anti-evolution law was upheld. 
And that concludes part two of our two-part series of the Roaring Twenties. I'm your host, Mr. Nasosi, and I thank you for taking time out of your schedule to listen to this episode of Print the Legend, where we look at the stories that made up America and the stories that America made up. Coming up next time, the Great Depression. At the end of the 1920s, the United States boasted the largest economy in the world. With the destruction wrought by World War I, Europeans struggled while Americans flourished, at least for 10 years. The events of 1929 touched off a chain of events that plunged the United States into its longest, deepest economic crisis in history. I'll see you right back here next time.